Ah, so time marches on. <laughs> As my granny always used to say. And we're definitely moving for most of us, not all of us, but we're definitely moving towards the ending of this month. And uh, the last few days will have some focus on integration. We're doing a Kuan Yin ceremony that we'll talk about next week after Sunday. So really, today, tomorrow, Monday will be our last more formal days like this, this this kind of a container that we're in for those of us that are just doing the month long. Just to put that marker in so that uh, we can uh, wisely contemplate and be with um, the change of circumstance and let that integrate and percolate a little bit into our process already. So it's less of a sort of like just hold on to the last moment (laughs) and then bam, out there on the freeway and oh, what happened? And uh, getting, you know, uh, a little overwhelmed by that shift of experience. And uh, in many ways, it's not really that the Dharma practice essentially changes through time and space. Practices come and go and evolve and teachings do as well. The fundamental principles are are continual, but there are sort of ways that one needs to lean into contexting the Dharma in accord to time and place. There's also, again, I recalled a lot on Ajahn Chah, I don't know quite why, but he definitely seemed to have appeared in this retreat quite a lot, but he was very much in, would teach about time and place, to have that agility, that it's not a rigid thing that you just sort of impose and try and shape the world around what you're doing with the Dharma, but to have the ability to listen in and to This is part of the bodhisattva training, to be flexible. How do you respond? How do you, as Master Wa would say, accord with conditions without losing fundamental principles? This according with conditions implies, implies flexibility, willingness to listen in beyond our sense of what should be and how it should be to hear other viewpoints, and so on. And yet in that process, still honing into fundamental principles that guide us through a very complex, turbulent, um, multidimensional crisis world that we're in. 
as to find a thread to maintain well-being, mindfulness, connection with the Dharma, and yet to be aware and not oblivious to the context that we're moving in now and working in, and the impact of that on us, on our energy, and on everyone else, in the societies that we're moving in, cultures that we're rooted in and connected with. There's a great need in this time to really shore up a sense of resilience and refuge. To have that ability to hone fundamental principles, non-harming ethics, compassion, clarity, incisiveness, what's, what's really happening here. What's false, what's true. To be able to return to this listening heart, present heart, awareness. To be able to root the the practice in body, embodiment, breath. How is it now? Starting again. Being able to be able to withstand what is uncomfortable, what is challenging, what is upsetting, without completely losing our our cool, and sometimes we do, and it's very humbling. Very easy to get so triggered. When the forms that we've been used to and that offer security and stability, when they change, then we can really lose a sense of ground. like in the Great Depression when the stock market crashed and people jumped off of high buildings. It's like, you know, the stock market crashed. You don't, if you're a Dharma practitioner, you don't crash with it. You know, it's painful maybe. You know, it's painful also not to have money, <laughs> not even in the, in the, in the game. You know, so, <laughs> you know, it's painful to see what has been secure and stable becoming otherwise. If you want to seek certainty in the uncertainty, as Ajahn Chah would always say, then you are bound to suffer. There's a lot changing. There's a profound uncertainty that flavors everything now. And so as a Dharma practitioner... The invitation in that is to, what is really stable here? Where do I find my refuge? What am I aligning with? What are my values? So this is really the art of being realistic, you know, to be more real. This is awakening, so not to live in illusions, idealisms and not to bypass, use spirituality to just bypass really important territories that we need to mature through. 
whether that be parts of our own individual unacceptable emotional, psychological material, feelings of rage and upset and jealousy, these really unacceptable emotions that we have. You know, they're not spiritual and I can't really allow that into my awareness. So we sort of spiritualize ourselves. We're called bypassing. Some very good work on that to be able to realize this is the actually the very manure of our sharpening stone or of wisdom, as Ajahn Chah would say. This is what we sharpen our wisdom and mature our compassion, deepen our empathy. <clears throat> In the same way, on a collective level, you know, understanding like the work that's been going on so deeply in these insight communities to understand the systems that we've all been involved with that privilege some according to race and class and so on but in oppress others so this work of really being willing to go through the paces of exploring how does that work if we have areas that we don't see clearly because we've lived in a bubble in certain ways, we've lived in a lot of different bubbles wherever we've come from. And those bubbles are popping. And it's very turbulent for us. So being willing to... This is the bodhicitta, bodhisattva heart. It's a humble heart, actually. You know, we have our defenses and our justifications, but it's willing to say, okay... So willing, what is I need to learn here? What am I needing to look at? Even with those one really disagrees with, which is hard. So that's that agility that Ajahn Chah embodied in so many ways. You know, ability to move in different spheres to this is part of the right view, the wise contemplation. It's not having a fixed view. We have our views, but being willing to be agile. Traditionally, the right view is in you know, this is what they call conventional views. If there are views and ways of seeing and values that we hold dearly, perhaps, that are very important. Classically, the five right views, that there is power in dana. Generosity has a power to it. It's not just a nice thing to do. It's a reality that when we live from that place of dana, that there's there's a, a corresponding affect and power to it. And it's not just necessarily about sharing assets and uh, and money, although that's a very important part. You know, if we have more assets to, to consider wisely, what are we supporting? How can we? share, and so on, on wisely. But as Master Wild talked about, dana is also 
offering of fearlessness, offering of support, standing with those that are more vulnerable, reaching out, offering time, offering an ear, offering guidance, help, being willing to stand up for, be a voice for those that aren't able to have a voice, those beings. This is an act of dana, of generosity, of moving out of our sort of self-sphere. It's a sort of a stretching of the heart. Development of skills. He talked about the, the dana of sharing dharma, the highest dana, actually, classically. That doesn't necessarily mean, okay, I'm going to sit down and give you a dharma talk. <laughs> it's not always going to be received like that. But it's a sort of um, a staying with and being in relationship in ways with someone and others over perhaps sometimes long periods of time. And I think of my family and then how one I live, it's definitely over 40-odd years. There's definitely ways that I, the, the dharma that I live has sort of suffused through the family system to a certain degree <laughs> without me having to go home and say, okay, here's the Four Noble Truths, Mum. <laughs> you know, so or you know, so that befriending and and just the example, holding the Dharma, living in ways that are called with the Dharma, sends out, even if we don't even know that that's happening, it it sends out a message, it sends out a vibration that's inspiring to to others. I'm inspired by, it doesn't matter who it is, it doesn't have to be someone sitting on a high seat, holds the Dharma. It helps me grow a bit. So we help each other in that sharing embodying, discussing, yes, sometimes teaching the Dharma. So this is where, you know, the the development of the Bodhisattva heart, the Bodhicitta, when we start, we often practice because we want some more peace, we want to deepen into certain qualities that we feel will be good for us, for our well-being. And that's a really important motivation. That's often where people start, where we start. But what's if we don't actually deepen the motivation, then when we come into choppy waters, it's difficult, suffering, then, then we sort of give up, look for something else. Let's kind of find another guru in town. It has a sort of easier message. <laughs> and the motivation deepens when we realize actually this path. And for me, I think that was a shock. Because I thought I would just sit in meditation, as I've said, and float off in some lovely, blissful way. I didn't think I was going to be in for some war zone. It was unremitting. You know, it was very, you know, very difficult to sit and be with my internal process until I really accepted that this is the path, 
disturbance is the path, it's not outside of. Like Ajahn Chah once when he was in London, first visit, and it was such an incredible thing at that time to have a master of such accomplishment, to be, you know, to come to to England. It was, you know, it was sort of never really, I'd never really seen someone that embodied wisdom in that way. I've seen a lot of smart and clever people, but not that depth, simple wisdom. He's very simple. He was, left school at 13. He was a, came from a, a farming community. So it wasn't about brilliance. It was this transformational field that he generated. You came into that vortex or that sphere, you were transformed, you were challenged, you were awakened. He called his, and sometimes he would even get you by the scruff of your neck, like he did when I went, stumbled into his space, I told you last night. You know, he wasn't about to be nice, he wasn't trying to please me. In fact, he didn't need, that, that was one of his powers, he, he definitely wasn't about pleasing people. <laughs> trying to make people feel comfortable. He was about liberating. So one day he was in London and he this, arranged this evening talk and everyone was very excited. It was a, again at Hampstead, in that small Vihara in London where it all started there in the UK. This transmission from Forest School to the West. And it was a very hot summer's day. I mean, we do occasionally get summer's day in England. I know it's quite rare, but they happen. And the windows were open, and it was a lovely balmy evening. But right across the road, there was a pub. And that night, they had a rock band. And it spilled out to the streets, and it was a whole massive amount of noise going on. And you couldn't really hear Ajahn Charles. So he just sat there and people got really agitated and really upset, trying to close the windows, trying to... He just sat there smiling. He didn't really even bother, just smiling. And after a while, he just said, well, did that noise disturb you or did you go out and disturb that noise? (laughs) You know, are we being disturbed or do we go out and find something to, you know, this is disturbing us? You know, where's the problem? You say, it's not to say we don't respond to disturbance. And challenge certain things. It's not what's being said here, but what's being said, what is your mind doing with this experience? Where's the dukkha? You know, is it actually in the rock band in the pub and people having a, you know, as they say in South Africa, a jol, you know, a happy time? Is, is that the dukkha? If we took that away, would it, you know? So really, that was his teaching. And, you know, I probably would remember that teaching more applicable than if he'd sat and given a very sophisticated Dharma talk on the Abhidharma or something. Nothing wrong with Abhidharma. Except he did say to one woman, again in London, I don't know if I should repeat this. Some of his stuff's unrepeatable. <laughs> But I will, as I've gone down this road, it obviously wants to pop in. 
when uh, she asked this really sophisticated intellectual question about the Abhidharma, you know, I think quite, I think probably quite proud of herself that she had some command of this whole world. And uh, and he was he was he would always be interested more in like where are you coming from, you know, what's happening here, what what's the mind state, what's what. So he just said, Madam, he said, you're like someone that keeps chickens, but unfortunately you go around in the morning and you pick up the shit and not the eggs. <laughs> I mean, it was rough. <laughs> There's no doubt about it. His point is like, where, you know, where, where's this dukkha? Have you freed your heart yet? Are you free yet? Yeah. So this is also as we start to, we're, you know, we haven't, the retreat hasn't finished yet. But as our pondering, what are we taking with us? This teaching of the four truths is central. Where is the dukkha now? This is the right view. This is the right view. Oh, I forgot the other ones. I started on dana. You can look it up. <laughs> that's, that's the great thing about having the text. You know, like just thumb through the five this, the four this, the 16 that. So the right view that Ajahn Chah taught was the, the wise reflection. It was in a way putting down your view. You know, what's happening here? Where is the dukkha? That leads us into nibbana, actually. Not just the nibbana of the deep, undying, deathless, immovable reality, whatever name, but the nibbana of just relaxing out of the constriction of the habit of suffering of dukkha is it is it is a sort of a habit. You know, the mind just feels very familiar in you know when it's suffering a bit. <laughs> so you can challenge that, you know. Dukkha, where's the dukkha arising and then attend there? What are we grasping? We're grasping my view, grasping the way it should be. I don't like it like this. And you might really be right. And, but, you know, as Ajahn Chah said to Ajahn Sumedha, when he got really upset with Mechi Kung Fu and she became a radical evangelical Christian and was going around what Bungwai International Monastery saying, Buddhism is evil, Ajahn Chah is evil, this is all BS. And Ajahn Sumedha's like, get, get rid of her, she's got to go. You know, he'd bought these English Buddhists, he's trying to impress them, and they were like horrified, you know, being converted to evangelical Christianity in Ajahn Chah's scene, you know. And he wasn't, he wasn't so much about what was, you know, Ajahn Sumedho being right, he was like, what are you doing with this? So his response was, you know, Ajahn Sumedho was complaining, he said, well, you never know, maybe she's right. I mean, that's a hard one. <laughs> but, you know, it's like, what is, where's your mind going? You've got to get rid of this. You know, we get rid of all our enemies. Then we actually start to become the very thing that we were trying to get rid of. So it's really this a very valuable, important establishment of right view, where's this dukkha, what am I clinging to, and then the nibbana, the niroda, the dispassion, the release. And it's not a release into just some sort of 
You know, as Kedisa was saying, enlightened cucumber. You're just frozen somehow. I'm not responsive. I'm leaving the world. I don't feel anything. It's not my concern. I'm deeply equanimous. Go away, basically. <laughs> don't bother my peace. Yeah. It's actually a release into a far deeper domain of intelligence, wisdom, prajna. That's dynamic, it's responsive. So the response then that comes from that dimension of being is going to be so much more accurate for transformation than coming and battering down each other with our views. So the willingness to die, actually, that's what Ajahn Chah die to you. <laughs> it's, you know, it's not like go down and lay down and die physically, but the self, the, you know, the ground that the self is built on, my territory, my assumptions, my agenda, my rightness, my views. It's just like softening lightly, holding that lightly. not an abdication of discernment. It's not just become an idiot. <laughs> Except any old thing. Oh, yeah, you're right, you're right, you're right, you're right. You know, something's like, no, it's a sila, ethics. It's not right. So it's not giving a position. And that's quite hard for us. I want a position to stand on. The dynamic, reflective relationship to life is what was being pointed to. The more mindful we are, the more deepening mindfulness gives birth and supports samadhi, gathering in the heart, the body, finding that ground, that refuge, that resilience, and then from there supports the flowering of wisdom, what's happening here, time and place, listening in, what feeling into the wise response, compassionate response, internally and externally. So as we begin to consciously just mark that we're moving slowly but inexorably to a shift from this form to other forms, you know, as we life unfolds within this field of awareness, whatever next comes to visit from wherever we go, We've had this chance to really you know, get familiar with some of our patterns, some of the places we get stuck, some of the principles that we're working with, some of the skills that we're developing. You know, the power of the anusai, the latent tendencies that get triggered. You know, how much patience, 
takes. a chance to really be with some of those tendencies and to consider, you know, so tomorrow, today, practicing tomorrow, you have that spacious, more spacious day perhaps, I'm not sure how you're holding it, but it might be a good day to really consider consciously what, what a value before it just sort of like disappears into dealing with whatever we're going to. What do, you, what do you feel is important to take from this space for you? What, familiar with our tendencies, what medicine do we need for that? Some of it's within the classical dharma, maybe something else that we might be bringing in, somatic work or therapeutic work or doing the qigong, working more with our body or the particular practices I actually feel I could hone up more and explore more. To consciously give that some thought, and maybe some of the world it comes in what we're going to. And we get very anxious. Oh God, please shut the door! <laughs> I don't want to deal with this yet. So just relax. And it's not saying obsess and get lost, but just for the moment, it's okay. This is the world, the perceptions, the feeling. What perception and feeling tone? What gets activated? Can I already? Replace that activation with a moment of mindful metta, discernment, contemplation, steadying, withstanding, strengthening, to be able to tolerate disturbance. So that we're aiming for an integrative practice rather than just like you know, clamp down and then get lost and get that lawyer on the phone again, Jen Charles, lawyer, help, can you book me in for another month <laughs> after we're back for a week, you know, which actually is not an unskillful thing to do by any means. But as Jen Charles said, like, try and see what's getting us into trouble in the first place. So little by little, Yeah, I'm pretty sure Ajahn Chah would be really, well, I don't know, that's a total assumption, but I feel he would be really offering a lot of blessings to what we're doing. He sometimes said that the Dharma is like a new shoot, which it is in the West. 
and was very impressed by that. There's a new tree growing. I know it's got lots of problems, lots of challenges, but and it heartened him because people were really interested in the the core of it, the liberating practices. I think he'd had a, one too many people come to ask him for lottery numbers <laughs> in Thailand. <laughs> Just a final story, not probably not final, but for this talk of Ajahn Chah and lottery numbers. <laughs> it was an obsession about asking monks and nuns, you know, what numbers do they Do they have any, this, this word nimitta is like a vision or sign. Um, it's slightly pretending to ask about the, the Dharma practice. Do you have any nimitas? You know, and they say, well, you had like five cows, or you saw like number five, you know. So they would have these ways of asking to extract and hopefully interpret lottery numbers. Um, and Ajahn Chah refused ever. You know, they say, what nimitta? He said, well, I have a nimitta. And, oh, good, get the pencil out. He said, I see dukkha. <laughs> <laughs> That's the nimitta I see. So he was he was pretty canny. But then <laughs> but then on the day that he died, um, the numbers and the day of his funeral was it the day of his funeral or his death? The numbers, the funeral. It was the sixteenth of January. Oh yeah, the year, the year later of the sixteenth of January nineteen ninety two that he died. Anyway, the numbers all, la- all, everyone did those numbers. And actually, it won the lotto and completely bankrupted the bookies in Ubon Ratchitani. They had to kind of escape town. So the headlines were the meta of Ajahn Chah. It's like, okay, f- there you go. That's what you wanted. You got it. That's so why Ajahn Chah was quite Guan Yin like. You know, it's like, okay, if you want it, okay, I'll give it to you. Now look at Dukkha. <laughs> Having lots of money is not necessarily going to free you from dukkha. In fact, sometimes make you more miserable. (laughs) Okay, so we have some very precious days left. Uh, Let's use them wisely.